talking about history, his story. And what we've been looking at is that everything that happens in the Old Testament, uh, so many of the, those things, they're foreshadowings of what is to come. And Jesus knew that. He, in fact, used that. We'll see that in our really strange, wonderful, amazing passage today. It might be a passage that you've never seen before. A lot of people last night told me I've never even known that was in the Bible, and yet right before the, the verse that we know better than any other verse in the Bible, Jesus talks about it. We're going to see that today. So pull out your sermon notes if you would. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to the book of Numbers. Have you ever read the book of Numbers? There's some interesting things in there tucked away in between a lot of other things that might be kind of uh, difficult to read, but God's got something for us today let me kind of catch you up on what's going on we've been following the people of Israel and they came right up to the edge of the promised land they were delivered from Egypt it's time to go into the promised land they sent in the spies the spies come back and say we're like grasshoppers to those people I mean there's no way we can do this I know God said this is your land go take it but the people there they live in these giant fortified cities and so they backed away and God said because of your unbelief, I'm going to have you walk around in the wilderness for 40 years. Did you know it didn't take 40 years to get from Egypt to the promised land? Just a few weeks. But they had to walk around for 40 years because he said, that whole generation that didn't believe, they're going to die off in the desert. And their children will go in and take the promised land. And so they've been marching around for a while. And let's catch up in Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4. It says this. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea, they're all the way back around close to the Red Sea again, to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient because of the journey. Now remember why they're out there in the first place is because they disobeyed, right? They would already be moving into the promised land, but they're still circling in the desert. And they, they get impatient. And God even though he said, none of you are going to enter the promised land. It's for your children now because you didn't believe. He still loves them. He's patient with them. In fact, he's raining down manna from heaven. Manna, the word manna means what is it? Because when it first came down, they didn't know what it was. But it comes with the dew in the morning. And they can go out and scrape it all together. And they make these little bread cakes that taste like uh, biscuits and honey. Which sounds pretty good actually, right? And then inexplicably, every once in a while, quail would come in just in huge droves where they could almost just go out and grab them. I mean, it didn't take any hunting hardly. And so they had bread and meat because God loved them so much. But look what the people say. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Is that what's happened? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. Now, which one is it? No food, no water, or miserable food? It's complaining. That's what it is, right? So that's what they're doing is they're whining and they're complaining against God, and it's sin. One of the things about sin, one of the huge characteristics of sin is that it is a deadly discontent. I want you to go all the way back to the very, the very first man and woman. And uh, you remember what happens in the Garden of Eden. Everything is perfect, right? 
and, and the serpent comes and, and, and he says, uh, how is it here? And Eve says, perfect, it's paradise. We have everything we could ever want. And what does the serpent say? Really, everything? I mean, I'm looking at this tree here. And if I'm not mistaken, I think this is out of bounds. And you know, as I look at the fruit on this tree, I bet it's 10,000 times better than all the other fruit. I mean, really? Everything? I'm not sure. I think maybe God's holding out on you. And what does he say? He says, if you eat of the fruit of that tree, God knows. Your eyes will be opened and you will be as God. Now that sounded pretty good. That's sin too, right? Wanting to say, I want to be God. I want to, not, I'm not satisfied with being one of the creation. I, I want to be God. And so we see it from the very beginning. A dissatisfaction, a distrust, uh, 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 this, this deadly dissatisfaction of our rightful place and God's rightful place. God, I wouldn't have done it this way. God, I wouldn't be marching around in this wilderness for so long. If I was God, I'd have a better plan for me. Look what happens. Verse 6, we're back in numbers now. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So they're whining and all of a sudden coming up out of the sands in the desert come all of these venomous snakes. It's a really crazy word used here. Seraphim. It means the flaming ones. And it's used for angels at another time. But this is about snakes. There's a particular snake in this part of this desert that when it bites you, it takes hours and hours to die. But you, begin, you get this raging fever and it's characterized by an insatiable, unquenchable thirst. And that's these fiery servants, the, 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 the flaming ones and and that's what what happens and you can kind of see some of the even though this is a, a true story the symbolism of what God is trying to show here there's a there, there's a deadly toxin inside all of us sin and, and it gives us this deadly dissatisfaction this insatiable unquenchable thirst and even in your finest moments on this planet outside of God it's like there's got to be more there's got to be more there's got to be something else. Verse 7, so the people come to Moses and say, We have sinned because we've spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove these serpents from us. I mean, we see a genuine repentance here among the people. They're not just saying, hey, get rid of the serpents. We don't want that anymore. They're saying, we have sinned. We've messed up. You know, I see a lot of people come to God and they say, God, I, I, I need you to fix something for me. I need you to fix my marriage or fix my spouse. I need you to, to, to work on my kid or I, I, I need you to help me with my finances. But what real repentance is, is just coming and saying, I've got something deadly on the inside and I need you to do something with me because I can't seem to do anything about it. And, and, and that's kind of the beginning of all of that. Moses interceded for the people, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, on a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. 
And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Now that's a really crazy story. Why did God do it that way? Why did God say that? It, it, you know, it kind of brings it all the way home and we're going to see that. One of the reasons why this feels like just a, a regular sleepy Sunday morning is because we don't realize how high the, the stakes are. The life and death of it, even in this service. You see, in this book of Numbers, in this chapter, the people of Israel, they understood the stakes. It wasn't just another day. Imagine, put yourself in their place. You're in the desert. Okay, you've been whining. I know that's not normal for you. But a little bit of whining going on. All of a sudden, these snakes come and they bite your kids. All of a sudden, these snakes come and they bite your friends. All of a sudden, these snakes come out and, and they bite your, your co-workers. And, and then all of a sudden, about the time you're like knocking them off, one grabs hold of you right on the shin. It's got you. And you start to feel this deadly venom begin to move through you. People are screaming. People are fainting. People are dying. People began over the hours that, that passed to, to say, I'm so thirsty. This insatiable, unquenchable thirst. And suddenly you see in a distance that a, a mob is gathering around something on a, on a pole. A and someone says, I hear if, if you look at the snake on that pole, you won't die. What do you do? Curious, consumed, determined. You begin to try to make your way there through the mob as everyone's starting to crowd that way and you grab your kids and you're pulling them. Maybe, maybe your coworker and you have to drag him because he's so, he's so sick already. But whatever we have to do, we're going to get there. And as you're making your way through, you stop and you check your Instagram. And you go, look at that cute kitty cat playing with that puppy. That's adorable. No, you don't do that, do you? I was got it mixed up with the service today. You're, you're transfixed. You're determined. I mean, this is life and death stuff. And so you, you get there, and you begin to stare at the snake, and you begin to feel something changing. You begin to know something's happening as, as time seems to stand still, and you begin to feel the healing flow through your veins where that deadly toxin has been before. Okay, why is this even in the scriptures at all? We're going to see that this is one of the most shocking and exact and beautiful pictures of the death of Jesus that he ever painted of his own death. And he's the one that said it. So let's move through history all the way into Jesus' day. He's on the planet. He's begun his ministry. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years have passed. And Nicodemus, one of the religious leaders, comes to him at night because he's scared to come in the day because he's, you know, Jesus is kind of off limits. The religious leaders have said, you can't go there. But he's knows something's going on. He's seen these miracles. He's seen something happen. So he gets to Jesus in the night 
and, and, and he says, I, I know that you're sent from God. I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Can, can you help me understand what's going on? And Jesus says, unless one is born again, he can't enter the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, I don't get it. Now, we've heard born again. It's thrown around all the time. And talk about born again Christians and all that. Who started that? That was Jesus. Jesus said you have to be born again. And Nicodemus is going, I don't understand. How can you go back into your mother's womb and, and, and be born again? I don't understand what you're, what you're talking about, Jesus. And Jesus tries to explain it to him. And Nicodemus still can't get it. And he, he says the wind blows. Jesus said the wind blows where it wants. And, and, and you can't figure it out where it came from or even where it's going. But you see the results of it. That's Notice the results, Nicodemus. And he says, I still, I don't get it still. Then in verse 12, it's as if Jesus in, in John chapter 3, verse 12, if you want to turn there. It's like Jesus has taken Nicodemus as far as he can by way of explanation. And, 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 and so finally he says this in John three twelve: If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What he's basically saying is, you keep pressing me for deeper uh, an understanding and explanations of the new birth. But your heart of unbelief, your finite brain that you have as a human being is not able to like wrap itself around this thing. And you're not able to receive the truth that I'm giving you. And what Jesus does then is hugely important for Nicodemus and just as hugely important for us this morning. And for those that we want to see experience a new birth. Verse 13 is a shift. In verse 13, he begins to change something. Before that, he's talking as a teacher, as a witness, as any other person might do. But with verse 13, he starts talking about him, starts talking about himself, not as a witness, not as a not as a teacher, but as the son of man, he says, which is his favorite word, means he's God's son. Who came down and was born of a man. Born of a woman. Mary. And you see that picture. He loves that title for himself. That he's one of us. He says the son of man. Look what he says in verse 13. No one has ascended into heaven. But he who descended from heaven. The son of man. In other words. I could give you all these heavenly explanations. But you're not going to be able to grasp them. Because. You haven't ever seen heaven. You don't know what that feels, touches, tastes like. No man has gone into heaven. I've come down to show you something. And Nicodemus, honestly, there are more obstacles to your entering the kingdom of heaven than just you being born again. There's the wrath of God on you. That's why you're so blind. There's, there's, there's the poison, the toxin of sin in your system. And... I can talk about it and talk about it, but that's not going to be enough. That's why I came down. I came down to do something about it. And then Jesus picks an analogy to describe what he's getting ready to do on the cross. And it's shocking that he would pick Numbers chapter 21 because listen to what he says in, in verse 14 of chapter 3. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not 
perish, but have eternal life. Now, a lot of us know John 3.16, but did you know right before that, he's talking about this thing that happened in the wilderness. Did you know that? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, like a snake, Jesus is comparing himself to a snake? That's shocking to me. Now you think about that. Think about the serpent and what it meant. I mean, the serpent on the pole, it's not preventative. It's not saying, hey, this is going to prevent you from ever getting sick. These people have already been bitten. They're dying, right? The toxin is already in their blood, and that's what Jesus is trying to say. Sin is already running through your veins. Sin that makes this insatiable thirst that you can't quench is running through you. Sin that gives you this deadly dissatisfaction. And I'm going to have to be raised up. I'm going to, he's talking about his death on the cross. I'm going to be put up to do something about that. We know that in the Old Testament that so many of the things pointed to what Jesus was going to do. And Jesus knew that. He used that kind of thing. But the fact that he would pull this story out is really important because you would think that he would just maybe skip right past this one. But no, he takes this special for Nicodemus and says, it's just like the snake in the wilderness as Moses lifted up that. God's provision, the snake. Now the snake was evil. What's Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm going to die as the very evil you deal with. I'm going to take all of the evil into me. I'm going to become evil on the cross for you. Did you know that Jesus did that? Did you know that that happened? See, Jesus wasn't just a great teacher who happened to die on the cross. He came to die on the cross because without the cross, we would be doomed. Just like the people who had been snake bit would be doomed. In fact, it says something really interesting in 2 Corinthians 5.2. Let me just tell it to you. This is the verse. It says, for our sake, God made him who knew no sin to become sin. Did you know that's what happened on the cross? It wasn't that Jesus knew no sin and then on the cross suddenly he knew sin. He didn't know sin. He became sin on the cross when he was lifted up on the cross he became the very deadly dissatisfaction inside of us he became all of that for us he took all of the wrath of God upon himself Galatians 3:13 says Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse this is the cross you know we, we wear the cross around our neck and we, and we have these little Christian symbols or put it on our bumper sticker, but it's so, oh, this is like life and death stuff. Jesus on the cross took all of God's wrath upon him. You know, a lot of people tell me, well, I don't know if I really believe in hell. The Bible speaks about hell. Jesus believed in hell. He talked about hell a lot. Hell is where God is not. And you know, a lot of times we think of these raging fires and stuff, but what I believe, it's really that rate that where God is not, sin is rampant. Where God is not, that raging 
fire of dissatisfaction begins to just explode in wildfire. And that's hell. As God is not there, the thirst we feel here becomes like a raging, unquenchable fire inside of us. In fact, remember what Jesus said on the cross? One of the sayings from the cross that we hear, Jesus spoke out suddenly. He said, I thirst. I think he's talking about this. I have become hell for you, this unquenchable thirst that could never be satisfied I thirst I know what it feels like he became that for us well how did you get saved by the snake did you go to the snake and and did Moses say if you rub the snake on the head three times and say some words you're going to be saved no he said look to the snake just look to it All you need to do is look to it. Don't pray a sinner's prayer, just look to it. Don't try to jump through hoops or try to walk on your knees or try to be good enough before the snake to be healed. Just look to it. And what Jesus is trying to tell us is that what I did on the cross is so magnificent, so all-encompassing that if you will just come and look to it, Because it's not you. There's nothing you can do to be born again. There's nothing you can do to make the change. I did it all when I was raised up. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, the Bible says, and be saved. He said, I did everything that needed to be done. Are you dying for a taste of the living water the one who is living water I did it all in becoming the snake he became the very embodiment of our sin the embodiment of our curse and in becoming the embodiment of it he took it away all this he's saying to Nicodemus and he's saying you know what you'll never get it you can't understand it it's beyond your finite little brain and your unbelieving, unregenerate little heart. I need you just to look to me. When I die on the cross, you come and you look to me. And some of you, you've, you've been trying to figure it out. You've been trying to work this, this Christian life out. You've been trying to figure out what this thing is. Can I just tell you something? You're never going to get it from that side. Jesus is saying, look to me. Look to what I did. Focus in on that. Like these people in the desert who had the the, the deadly and insatiable thirst, that venom flowing through their veins. You have the same thing. Come to me. Look to me. You know, as believers, there's still, some of us have done that. We've come to him and we've looked to him and we've looked to what he's done for us on the cross. And we realize it's all about him and not about us. We've moved into that. We made our way there. But... Some of us, we still, you got to know, even as believers, we have the residual of the poison inside of us. And some things, sometimes things can get kind of stale or because we forget. You know, when our worship has grown cold, it doesn't mean we need to change the music or the, or the leaders or, or, or any of that. It just means the poison has begun to numb us again a little bit. The fever is on us. You know... When you become a Christian, 
It doesn't mean that at a certain point we throw all our hope on Jesus. And then later we just kind of go about our business. What it means is we become more broken, more desperate every single moment. You know how someone, you know someone's moving forward in, in faith in Christ is they, they see how sinful they, they are. They see all of their sin. In fact, they'll be sinning less and less a lot of times, but it seems worse and worse to them because the closer you get to the light, the more that you can see the dirt. We are the bitten. When our worship leaders are up here, they're not saying stand and sing, really. They're saying look and live. All of us have been bitten by sin. All of us hear the hissing, hypnotizing allure of trying to be our own God. And there's only one hope. Lift your eyes. Lift your eyes from one who also bears the fang-shaped scars, I tell you, I beg you, lift your eyes to him. See, God has no other plan of salvation. People are offended by the bloody cross of Jesus. I, I don't understand it. I don't know why it had to be that way, they say. I, that doesn't make sense to me, and I, I understand all of that, but let me tell you, there is no other way God in his infinite wisdom knew that way back our very first father and mother did what we would have done and fell into a deadly discontent and there's only one solution Jesus on the cross becoming the curse for us God, forgive us that we've complicated it so much. God, forgive us that we've made it so difficult. Just come 